Good morning. God bless you. Well, there's um, not going to be any... I'm glad we've got a lot of books at home. There's not going to be any more watching TV because after the Hurricanes game, I smashed up our TV and threw it on the front lawn. Uh, apart from that, I took it quite well. I didn't really, but um, there we go. But isn't it good that our life, as much as I love sport and rugby and all other things, isn't it good that our life, our hope, our essence is not drawn out of whether the Hurricanes or the All Blacks or whoever win or lose, but it's found in the presence of the living God. Amen? Amen. And he never loses. We're with him in victory for eternity. That's uh, the wonderful news of the gospel. So I would like to talk this morning about spending some time in the presence of the Lord. And I'm just going to start by reading a well-known passage to you all out of Genesis 4. Adam and Eve have left the garden and start in what we now know as normal life. It is, of course, the fallen world. And starting from verse 1, it says, Now the man had relationships with his wife Eve. And she conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Let me say this. Cain's failure at the altar leads to his inability to master sin. That was worth you coming this morning just to hear that. It's not original from me. I'm going to repeat it again. Cain's failure at the altar leads to his inability to master sin. That's a good word. And it's a good warning. It's encouraging for us, not because the focus is on failure. It's encouraging for us because it shows us where the place of victory is. And that's before the altar of the Lord. See, We, all of us, as believers, as disciples, as those who love God and his kingdom, we need to establish an altar before God, before we seek to petition him for our needs, before we seek to do his work that he's called us to do, or before we go about any part of our lives. And ultimately, this is going to decide whether his we achieve his design for our lives, not only for our works, but who we are, who he wants us to be, being transformed from one degree of glory to another, will all be dependent on how well and how often we have established 
an altar before the Lord. So I have a question, and it's not only for you, it's for me as well. How often do you just pause and remind yourself who he is? How majestic and awesome and wonderful he is, and how worthy he is for us to come before him with an offering of praise and worship for no other reason but the fact that he is the almighty, most wonderful God. Full stop. There doesn't need to be any other reason. But just to come before him and go, wow, you are God. You are the God, the only God. You rule and you reign over all of the universe. And you take such an interest in me that you can even count the numbers of hairs on my head. For me, that got a lot less yesterday. For many of you, there is a lot more. But imagine the detail that God has to know about you and I to know the number of hairs on your head, honestly. Yet he rules and reigns over all the universe. And you can hear why David and other psalmists say, what is man that you're mindful of us? But he is. He is. He loves us with an everlasting love. He gave his life that his holy and righteous judgment would fall upon himself, not upon you and I. I, I you know, whenever we come here to worship, I, I look at the words of the songs, and the worship was wonderful this morning, guys. Thank you. And I just stand in awe of who he is. So let's dig. I want to dig into, I mean, we could have gone to so many different places, but I want to dig into just a few verses in Psalm 84. And just uh, see there's some, some treasures in there and see if we can recover a few this morning. So it starts off, verse 1. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. Amen. Amen. That's what gets us out of bed in the morning. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. The bird also has found a house, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. How blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Selah. Selah means pause and think about this. How blessed is a man whose strength is in you, and whose heart are the highways to Zion. Passing through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The early rain also covers it with blessings. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. So here is the first point, and we'll leave those verses up if we can. Here is the first point. God always establishes an altar, a place of his presence, before he begins to unfold his plan and his purposes for us as individuals, for us as a gathered community, for us as a nation, if we ever want to go out that far, the first thing God does is establish a dwelling place. I can't, don't have time to go through all the depths of this this morning, but when David said that he was going to build a house for the Lord and the Lord said, said basically to David, 
why are you now looking to build me a house? I've always lived in tents. And there's a whole lot of story in that and how it was given to Solomon. But the point is here, what God was saying was, you've always had my presence with you. I established a dwelling place. For a while it was in tents. Then it was in the first temple. Then it was in the second temple. And then we incredibly become the temple where God established his dwelling place. Do we really realize that? I mean, Solomon built this amazing temple for God. It was breathless and breathtaking, but God said, the day is going to come when I'm going to have a better temple than you could ever build for me, Solomon. And do you know what that temple was? Your body and your being. Amazing. You can go on the internet now and look at this great temple that Solomon built, and God looks at it and says, this is nothing. This is very temporary. You wait and see where I build my most precious temple, and he built it in your heart and in my heart. Isn't that incredible? That alone is worth worshipping for. So is this dwelling place that God has established in your life, is it a good place? Is it a place where all that he is about is deeply worshipped and desired? Is it something that you constantly yearn for and then express with some feeling and passion? Do you wake up in the morning and I don't care when and where you spend time with God. And I know we take him. He lives in us, so he comes everywhere with us. I understand that. But this calls on something more than just the knowledge of that. It calls on us for participation, for a loving, cherished relationship. So for me, the mornings work best. So when I wake up in the morning, and I'm a fairly slow waker-upper these days, my heart is yearning for the presence of God. The highlight of my day is to go for a walk, to pray, to worship, and then be able to sit down, read his word, and just, just express my heart to him. See, is, is that what we're really passionate about? An altar is a place of worship. It's a place of praise and meditation. And it's an offering before the Lord. So if you don't feel like it, do it anyway. Because there's got to be sacrifice in it. If it's always sacrificial, there's something wrong with your relationship with him. If it's not a yearning and a deep desire, something's going wrong. Get help. Seek God. Seek prayer. Do whatever you do. But there is times when you just don't feel like it for a whole lot of reasons. And at that point, we have the deep privilege of bringing a sacrifice of praise and worship before the Lord. And he is worthy of it even when we don't feel like it. When Satan offered Christ all the kingdoms of the earth, when he offered him everything, now we can argue whether or not he really had possession of those things, but let's not go there. When he offered him everything, it was on one condition. And the condition was this, that Jesus would no longer go to the altar of the Lord. That Jesus would no longer go to the presence of God. That Jesus would no longer worship him and praise him and have his love relationship with him. And I don't believe Jesus was the least bit tempted 
to exchange that for whatever the things of the world are. I believe that was easy to say no to. You've got to be joking. Frequently when they said, where is Jesus? He was here last night. He's gone this morning. They said, you will find him before the temple of the Lord. You will find him in a heartfelt, loving relationship with the Father. So it was a no-brainer to exchange that for whatever Satan was offering him. Nothing would compensate for such a loss in Jesus' heart. And the same thing should apply for us. Verse 3. The birds found a house, a swallow a nest for herself. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Do you frequently hear a cry coming out from deep inside of you? My King and my God. Because the Holy Spirit is breathing that inside of you on a constant basis. But you have to join your heart with him. And you will hear not only the Holy Spirit, you will hear your own soul cry out, My King and my God. Is he really that personal to you? He wants to be. He desires to be. He can't get closer to you than putting his whole being, the essence of his being, inside your body. The rest's up to us. How close do we get to him? How much of him do we let in? Verse 4. How blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Selah. See, I've spent too much of my life I don't mean that in any unfair way. Living in other people's homes all around the world, and it's been a great privilege and a great journey and a great blessing. But I love my home. I love my own home. When I set myself, I've got to make sure I don't think about this till the very last day when I'm away ministering and doing things. But when I'm finally heading towards the airport, my heart races inside of me to get home to get back to my home and everything it means to me. But if I'm dwelling in someone else's house, it means I'm their guest, right? And there's a number of things I would like to do in my own home that I may not be free to do, and that's just the way it works. But listen, in this situation, we have the privilege of being guests of God. And guess where he's come to live? He's come to live in your home. And in your heart. Sure, we visit him in the heavenly realm, Colossians 3. So many passages say that. But he has made himself a guest, not a good word for God, but he has made himself a guest in your home. And has said that if you love me, if you worship me, if you set your heart on me and my kingdom... I will do the things in your home that you want me to do. And I'll do the things that you want to do. And we'll do them together. See, we can get away from a noisy world and our iPods and computers and iPhones and all those things. And sometimes we need to learn what the off button really means. We really do. And we can withdraw and get into the presence of the most high 
God. And as well as us focusing on him, do you know that he's completely and utterly focused on us? Incredible. Incredible. You say, hi, Lord. And he say, well, hi, Ben. Hi, Kerry. Hi, Peter. Been waiting to spend some time with you. Great to see you. We have his total undivided attention. Wow. It's as though there is nobody else or nothing else around. And he's waiting for that any time of the day, any situation. The psalmist says they'll ever be praising God. Their very lives were dominated by the adoration of him. Their hearts and their tongues never cease from magnifying the Lord. I want to ask the question, is this you? Do you frequently through the day just pause and meditate, even if it's for a few seconds in your place of work or driving, keep your attention on the road, whatever you're doing, do you just pause for a minute and think, isn't my God and my King amazing? Thank you, Lord. Verse 5, how blessed is the man whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. And this opens up a few more questions. Sorry about all the questions. See, the blessedness of true worship doesn't belong to half-hearted, listless worshippers. I've said this before, I'm getting a bit old and short of breath. I can't break out and worship and dance and run all around this, this auditorium. I used to. Years and years ago, I used to. But in my heart, I still am. I'm still doing it. I just want to get out there and go when the worship and everything starts. I'm sure some of you did it last night watching the rugby. Now, I'm sure if you're a true Hurricanes fan, you were weeping. But that's okay. But there's got to be something in us which is more than just a zest for life, brothers and sisters. It's got to be a zest for God and for his presence and for his spirit. And we engage that when we worship him. See, God always looks upon our heart. So neither prayer nor praise nor hearing of the word will be pleasant and profitable to us if we've left our hearts behind. So if we stagger out of bed and say, well, Lord, I've heard I'm meant to be spending a bit of time with you. What am I going to read? And there is no heart in it. That, you know, God longs to draw us completely into his presence for our sake and for his blessing. And again, he is worthy of it. So bring your heart. You're going to sit with your father. You're going to get his undivided attention. You're going to get the great privilege of being able to worship him in spirit and truth. Don't leave your heart behind. Bring it with you. See, these people in Psalm 84, they're on a pilgrimage. They don't have the great blessing that you and I do today where the spirit of God lives within our hearts. So every year, the Jewish people, if they could, would go to the temple. And it would be a huge celebration and a huge time of worship and a gathering of all of the people. So they're on their way. In Psalm 84, they're on their way. They're focused on, hey, where are you going? We are doing our annual pilgrimage. We are going to get into the presence of the living God and to worship him. And they're excited 
these people. And traveling back in those days was not easy. They didn't climb on planes and get served meals and coffee and everything. They were, they were traveling the hard way, often walking, sometimes with some horse-drawn carriages if they were wealthy enough or a donkey to ride on if they were wealthy enough to have those things. But for many of them, they walked together, journeying to go and get into the presence of God. See, when we have God's, the anticipation of being in God's presence, in our hearts and in our ways, we are where we should be in every aspect of life. We're not going to sin. We're not going to do the things we shouldn't be doing when our whole focus is consumed by who God is and his calling on our lives. As the psalmist says, those who love the ways of God are blessed. Oswald Chambers, see, so how do we find rest in life? And this is a challenge to all of us, and if you've overcome that challenge, please come and see me at the end of the meeting. But Oswald Chambers says this, I love this. Resting in the Lord is not dependent on your external circumstances at all, but on your relationship with God himself. Resting in the Lord is not dependent on your external circumstances at all, how you feel, what's going on in your life, whether it's good, whether it's bad or otherwise, but on your relationship with God himself. So a good barometer of our relationship with God is how much peace and rest are we experiencing in our life despite what is going on around us or within us or through us, how much peace and rest do we have? And that'll give us a good indication of how things are going in our relationship with God. I love the other thing the psalmist says in verse 5, in whose heart are highways to Zion. So here is another good question. Is your life a great highway to God that others can travel on? When people engage with you, does a highway to God open up for them? Whether they want to take it or not, does a highway to God suddenly become visible or obvious when they engage with your life? See, these people are traveling joyfully along the road, despite the hardships, often lack of water, often they're tired, often it's dusty, often there's sandstorms, but they're traveling joyfully along the road because they're heading towards the great assembly, the gathering of people where they're going to have an encounter with the Most High God. Now, I have no condemnation here, but is that what you felt when you got up this morning and headed towards this auditorium? Now, I know you could have stayed in bed and the presence of God is there with you, but not like this when we gather together with all the saints. Not like this. Different. Not like this. And for most of us, we can only do this once a week. So we need to get up and say, I am going to the gathering of the saints. I'm going to the great assembly. I don't have to walk. And even if I had to walk, it would only be three or four K anyway. 
I don't have to walk along a dusty dirt road with lack of water or whatever. But even if I had to, I would do it to get in the assembly of the people and come before the combined corporate presence of God and worship him with my brothers and sisters in Christ. That's a privilege, guys. Not everybody has it. Some of the countries that I go to and minister in don't have that privilege. It's got to be to some degree undercover. It's got to be some degree hidden. They don't tell people, we're going along to a place here to worship the Most High God. That is a privilege. And being able to gather together like this is something that our heart should respond to and want to do, and it should pour out of us when we're here together. I love what David Riddell says. You know, it's a great criticism. I don't go to church anymore because the Holy Spirit's not there. Absolutely stupid, ridiculous statement, but let's put that aside. David Riddell says, well, if he's not there, stir up the gift that is within you and you'll find his presence there. That's up to us, guys. It's not up to God. The Holy Spirit doesn't really stay out the door and say, I'm not going to church anymore. So don't believe those people when they tell you that. It's not possible for him to do that. He's here. He wants to be stirred up. He wants his people to be overcome with their love and appreciation and worship and praise to him. And even if we don't feel like it because our life's not working and we go through difficult times, and by the way, we all do, says, well, then make it a sacrifice and bring the sacrifice to the altar and do the same thing because the Most High God is worthy of such a sacrifice. And if we start saying, well, that's a lot to, to ask, Lord, let's just talk about the cross for five seconds and that thought should flee from us. Amen? Verse 6, passing through the valley of Barca, they make it a spring. Barca means waters of bitterness or a bitter place. They make it a spring. How do they make it a spring? Because they bring their offering of praise and worship and they gather around and, ah, blow, there's no water and I was looking forward to a drink. But we're all together. We're heading for the presence of God. Nothing's going to shut down our worship, our enthusiasm and our expectation of getting into the presence of the Most High God. God provides his people with what they need while traveling on the journey. And I'm old enough to know that the journey's not always a nice, pleasant downhill road. Where there were no natural supplies from below, they found an abundant compensation in the waters from above. Can you hear what I just said? When there is no compensation. I have cried out plenty of times, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? I can't find you in this. But always I'm constantly searching for him. I want to find him because I know he has not left me nor forsaken me, even though it feels like it. The Holy Spirit still assures me that has not happened. He doesn't do that. He'll never do that. 
And all these things are just temporal. And they're building in you and me an eternal weight of glory. Do we love it? I hate it. And I'm grateful when it's over. But they are building in us an eternal weight of glory. What's happening when you're traveling along through life? Are you continually grateful to God? And in hard times, do you trust him, turn to him, push harder into him? Or do you easily become grumpy, disillusioned, and troubled? See, this shouldn't be the case with us because we know our God rules and reigns and that our life for eternity is set. And let me say this one thing again. One of the reasons why we gather together is because when you or I are going through hard times, other brothers and sisters are going through times of blessing, and we see that and we gain hope. You can't get that on your own. It is generated as we, as a community, come together and see God moving all over the place in different situations, different circumstances, hearing the testimonies of people who have overcome things, hearing the testimonies of uh, people who are experienced God's blessing, as well as hearing the testimonies of times when we do go through suffering and being reminded that it's building in us an eternal weight of glory. We can come to Baca, the place of difficulty and bitterness and struggles, and put it all on the altar, knowing that once it's on there, it will eventually be turned to good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. If we put those things on the altar, they will eventually, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not next week, maybe not even this year. But if we put those things on the altar, the promise is they will eventually be turned to good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. Pilgrimage. To the tabernacle were a grand feature of Jewish life. They journeyed together, worshipped together, prayed together, praised together, laughed together, cried together. I, along with a number of you here, have done that with all of you for 36 years. What a privilege. What a journey. Are we really going to discount that and our journey of life. The soul of every person on those journey was yearning for God. He lives within you and I today. We don't have to go on the journey. We're certainly on the journey of life, but we don't have to go on any journey to get into the presence of God. It's there instantly like that the minute we turn our heart to him. But... I'm still saying establish an altar. Find a place of peace and quiet and visit regularly. And when somebody says, where are you? Where is so-and-so? Say, they'll probably be be before God. It's their favorite place, wherever it may be. 
True believers love the courts of their king. My heart and my flesh cry out to the living God. Verse 7, they go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. So far from being wearied, they gather strength as they go through the journey and as they proceed. They draw it from one another. They draw it from the awareness and the presence and the expectation of God, knowing who he is, knowing that what he has done for them in the past, he will do for them again because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's great One of my biggest regrets is not keeping a diary because we can go back five years ago, ten years ago and say, I remember I've been here before and here's the page in my diary and look what God did. He brought me out of it. That's why God said to the Israelites, mind your children and your children's children of what I've done for you because not all of them will experience these same things, but in the troubles of life, you can take them back and say, let me tell you a story. We as the people of God were here and here and here, and this is what God did. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he, if he did it for us back then, he'll do it for you today. If God is truly our father and we are his sons and daughters, we need to get to know him intimately. And this takes time. It's like any friendship or relationship. It involves being living with one another and getting to know one another and spending time together. And the more we get to know God, the more we will love him and the more that will cause us to love one another. It works. It's a formula that cannot stop because it generates its own power. And it overcomes our fallen nature. See, the true essence of all of this, and I'm finishing off. The true essence of all of this is that we learn to love him just because he is. When God said to Moses, when Moses said, tell me your name, and he said, I am, course Moses had to learn what that meant but God didn't feel there was any more he needed to say that should be enough we love him just because he is who he is there's a lot of fringe benefits there's a lot of side benefits and they'll go on eternally and we're all grateful for those things and the scriptures tell us to bring our knees before God and all of those things but we love God for one reason only And that is because he is. We learn to love his presence and we never want to be without it. As this unfolds, not only do we get on a journey of discovery of who God is, we also discover who we are and who he intended us to be. And that wonderful process of transformation takes place in us every day. Every day one degree of glory to another. So I want to challenge you. Firstly, let me say this. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus and you've never ever made Jesus the center of your life and bought your life as an altar before him, don't leave this meeting without coming to one of the elders or the leaders and taking the opportunity to do that. 
He'll take your life as a worthy offering of exchange for what he has done for you. And the second thing I want to say for all of us that are believers, have you established an altar before God? Have you found a place on a regular basis that you can go, whether it's a physical place or not, doesn't matter, that you can go and you can encounter the presence of God and as you do so, your heart will yearn and long for you to go back over and over again and there is the essence of life. Let us pray. Father, we want to thank you that We read of those people going on a long, dry, dusty journey to get a few days in your presence. And Lord, you have now come and made your home within our own body and being. Wow. Father, may our souls give in to their natural state, which is to yearn for the presence of the living God. Help us build an altar before you, Father. And we thank you for the privilege that we can enjoy you any day, any time, and any place. But we thank you also for the privilege of being part of a biblical community that we can gather together in a way that we cannot experience you alone. May we never take those things for granted, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Jesse.